The Greatest Stories Never Told is brought to you by our good pals at Cooper's Board Store, Australia's largest in-stock board store. Located in Coffs Harbour, or you can shop online, Coops is shipping surfboards Australia-wide every day. 50-plus years, locally owned since 1969. There's boards for all levels and over a 1,000 sleds in stock. Yeah, Coffs might have the big banana. Yeah, Rusty Crow might live up the road. But if you're going to go to Coffs, go to Coopers. And if you can't call in, get your stick sent to your front door at coopersboardstore.com.au. Oh, man. Fantasies. Pulsing swells, them who knows them, seldom tells. On distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never. G'day, Shauno. Welcome back to Ain't That Swell. Happy 2023, mate. How's the waves down there? Are you in Vico or Stratty? I'm in Vico, mate, and they're completely non-existent, as they've been for about the past three years. <laughs> we, we said on an episode the other day, we were like, uh, fuck, what has happened down there? What have Victorians done to deserve this three years of just getting kicked in the surf nuts? Oh, I don't know, mate, but if you are, uh, or, you know, everyone on the East Coast, if you're on a break from surfing, just come down here for a while. <laughs> a few Vicos in classic Vico style got their noses out of joint too, like, oh, it hasn't been that bad. But uh, I know the yeah. truth, mate. Mate, um, welcome to The Greatest Stories Never Told. We've actually read a few of yours uh, on the program in the past few months, and people been frothing. Uh, the Andy Iron story from Puerto Rico was a... Oh, just had such an amazing response, as you'd expect. Um, and we've got something in a similar vein here, but uh, a different kind of energy around it, I suppose. This is from um, 2012, SW326, the June issue. And uh, you'll recall we did a, a you know, cover-to-cover feature mag on the great Michael Peterson, the infamous Michael Peterson. <coughs> That's right, mate. Yes. Yeah, Michael's passing. Yeah. Now, what a what a... Big, strange, uh, sad couple of months that was. Yeah, we did two story reads. The first is Michael from Tweed, which was your intro to the mag and kind of a, a, a fairly solid reflection on on your time getting to know Michael and spending time with him and separating the myth from the legend. Uh, yeah, the legend from the man. Sorry, and that's a really sort of personal story. But then uh, we also read. Uh, Rabbit's story, which he wrote for the mag too, which was called Just Surf Chine. And uh, in that story, you know, Rabbit says that he was one of the few people that he, who felt privileged enough to be called Chine, you know, by MP, which which you got to experience too. But yeah, man, I mean, I guess what I took away from reading these stories and, and looking back at this particular issue of Surfing World was that it felt like MP had been gone for a long time. Like, it, it he's... His death did come as a surprise because it, it, it's weird, man, but it felt like it was a reminder of a death, not the death itself, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it was a strange one in that, you know, if you, you look at it compared to most people who, you know, who live, you know, in with a public life or, in, you know, who are out and about all the time and have a group of people who see them all the time and, and, and when they go, you know, that connection suddenly just stops. But, you know, but for Michael, in a lot of ways, that connection had stopped um, 30 years earlier. Mm. So, you know, because he'd been living peacefully with his mum and, and really, you know, didn't, didn't socialise much at all, um, if at all. You know, daily walk was, was pretty much the extent of it. And so he'd, he'd really kind of cut off from a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the, the crew he grew up surfing with, you know, guys like Rabbit. And, and he, he disappeared from the scene, you know, kind of, you know, half by circumstance, half by choice as well. And, and so he, he'd kind of, in a way, he'd gone already by that mm. point and 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 disappeared even though he was still very much alive and in living living it with his mum at in you know in cox drive there um he he'd gone he was he was already gone and that and obviously you know he'd, what had happened in the you know the the life he'd lived and the surfing he'd done in the 10 15 years before that had been just so incandescent and just so wild and and the and the life that he'd lived around mm. it all as well that <clears throat> that um that it just you know when he, when he kind of disappeared from the scene and just didn't go out it was it was just like a vacuum you know mm. <clears throat> and and so all this and what filled that vacuum was all the mythology <clears throat> you know he was all the stuff and you know that all the stories all got got lives of their own and um tales of his surfing just became you know it sounded supernatural and and it just created this character that um that you know may or may not you know uh depending on who you talk to match up to the reality of of the life he'd lived but mm. it, it just became you know um this huge thing that had just got a life of its own even even though michael's life was was just peaceful and living at home with his mum you know sid barrett style so mm. um it, for, so so finally and of course then you know he'd had a mild walk back out into the um into the spotlight a little bit when the book had come out and um he'd taken some small steps and had seen you know caught up with a bunch of crew when he could and um but then you know for, for him to pass away finally it was you know you felt you kind of almost already done a bit of that um you know eulogizing of him already at that mm. point so it was it was a it was a really strange time. Um, obviously, it was really different for those close to him, and who like obviously you know Joni and and Tommy and the and the sisters and um, you know it was it was probably a little different for for them obviously because Michael's still very much a part of their daily life. Mm. Um, but for for people who'd grown up surfing and with the myth of of Michael, it was you know I, yeah it was, it was a it was an odd kind of final, final chapter mm. you know, in, the, in the life of Michael. Yeah, you mentioned in your story, mate, that, you know, when the book came out, this this weird side effect was that it did sort of drag him back into public life a little bit. And you found that, uh, I guess, I don't know if you were doing press together or, or how it was working, but he, yeah, he turned up at surf comps. He was down at Kira for certain, you know, club anniversaries and stuff like that. And, you sort of mentioned that he was surprised that people loved him and that people were so stoked to see him. Like, did he honestly feel 
so separated from surfing that 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 just wasn't even a possibility in his mind? Um, I think he kind of disconnected himself totally from it, and so it had just gone off on its own thing. And you know, obviously, he there were a lot of people he was really close to, and mm. and and kind of work working out who he was close to when he was in his prime was, you know, uh, even when I'd done the first book, I hadn't worked it out, and I didn't work it out till after he died, really, mm. who, the, who the really close ones were, because he'd kept them, he'd really kept them guarded, and they'd also guarded, in, in return, they'd guarded him, and and I didn't really catch on to a lot of those crew and who they were until pretty much it twigged when I was at his funeral, and and I looked around the, the room and I'm looking, and there's obviously a lot of faces I knew very well, and there's a lot of faces I didn't know at all. I kind of go, "Who are some of these guys?" And they, were, you know, um, and it it worked. It turned out that you know when Michael had kind of once he dropped started to drop away from the pro scene a, a bit and everything, and he just lived a bit of a transient life up and down the coast, and still surfing and still ripping, and he was shaping a lot, you know. But he he landed in odd places, you know. He was living living in Yamba for a while. He was living in Marimbula for, mm. for a long time. He was living in all these places and he'd, he'd have, he'd have close confidants where he'd, he'd just drop in and stay with them for a few days. And, and obviously some of these people, you know, there was a reason we didn't know about him because he, he didn't want us to know about him because that they, they, you know, they, they often shared habits with him. Um, and, and that was, and part of the thing is that, you know, they'd, they'd look after each other and, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't speak to anyone about what they were up to mm. is basically kind of where it was at. But of course, once he, once he shuffled on and they felt a bit freer to talk about the the times and what they'd been up to. And, um, and you, yeah, you kind of got a, a fuller picture of, you know, his life because the, the mythology is all around the pro circuit and his time on tour yeah. and how, how devastating he was. And, mm. but yeah, there was a, also particularly when the, schizophrenic kicked in and he, he was living this life in the car and his famous all his famous car stuff and traveling yeah. around the place that was like another life altogether yeah and 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 that a lot of that didn't come out till after he'd gone can you give us a bit of context just just for listeners who might not be familiar with uh the mp story and, and you know the fact that you went in uh, as a young editor of tracks i guess at that by that stage what what year was that by the way uh, I think 03 or 02, I probably started the book. Mm. I, I think I finished it in 03. Yeah. Um, so you go in and you, you're just dealing with a ghost. Like, I mean, you're walking in there <laughs> with nothing but basically like uh, the abominable snowman, you know, Bigfoot. You've got like eight <laughs> different mythical beasts all rolled into one surfing monster. And you go into, you know, this house and, and you find this sort of frail, gentle, softly spoken guy. But... You know, in all of your research and, uh, you know, talking to everyone and even just with what you knew from your own surf history, just can you contextualise just how brutal and strong and frightening and talented this guy was in his prime? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, you, you know, when I got the gig to do it, I was green beyond belief. I'd never written a book and I'd never seen Michael Peterson surf. You know, I was a generation removed from that. But like on the Australian coast, I don't think, you know, that doesn't matter so much because it that mythology we was we were talking about everyone in my generation knew who he was and and it was might have been more powerful by that stage than it actually was when he was still around um so but but you know i, I was really green had 
but and I, what I didn't think I was a great writer at that point. I still don't now. And, and I thought, well, what I can do though is actually speak to people. You know, mm. that's that's and I can work my ass off and really, really speak to people and get get a sense of kind of how they felt and and their their you know stories of the time and and speaking to these people, you know, what, whatever it was, it was twenty five years after his heyday at that point. And mate, the way they talked about him it was just like. Mate, it was still you could see their eyes light up, and mm. the way they they were so animated, and and talking about specific surfs and and specific waves and and certain stories of Michael and mate, they'd come to life, and and you could see what an effect it must have had on these people at the time. That you know, being around him and and surfing with him and growing up with him, and um, he just you know, you got the sense that it was this real power. He was this real powerful force. And yeah, some some thought it was good, some thought it was you know a little darker, and um, but it was it was just this this huge. He must have been just this huge presence to mm. to be around, and um, and that was you know I, I got a sense of that once you you start spending enough time with the people themselves, and you know, but it was hard for me to reconcile that when you're sitting down at the kitchen table with him, you know, because yeah. by that stage he he doesn't look look like Michael Peterson, he's no. prime, he doesn't sound like him, and and it, it took a while to kind of, you know, to understand where that person from the seventies had gone, and that bits of him were still there. Um, but the, the person sitting next to you was probably was quite a bit different, you know, mm. in a, in another way. And what about Rabbit, mate? Like, I mean, reading Rabbit's story, and you'll get to have a listen to this, um, you know, once once the episode comes out. But it's just. You can feel the emotion. You can feel the, the the wild mix of feelings just flooding Rabs when he's writing this because it was shortly after MP had died and we kind of leaned on him to, to pen a bit of a tribute and it's it's all over the place. But in on one hand, it's just you, you can tell he's talking about a guy who he just looked up to and loved and all of that. But, you know, on the other hand, there was a war brewing. He knew he wanted to beat him. He knew he was going to be an adversary and even... MP realised and recognised that super early. And, yeah. You know, it's like, how can you be best friends with someone who is just threatening you so badly? Uh, and and MP just, you know, couldn't really allow uh, Rabs to ever get too close to him in the end. It was, yeah, it's, it's close. You've got the guy who's probably the most, the most suited psychologically, this character, to be a surf star in Rabbit. Mm. You know, that's all he wanted was to be a surf star. And then you got this other guy on the other hand, who who wants absolutely nothing to do to to do with being a surf star. It's like it's his worst nightmare, is to is to have that kind of attention on him all the time. And you got these two kind of growing up and going head to head, and and um you know from club contests all the way through. So it was, but you know you you said that that you know you could sense the emotion in Rabbit's tribute in that magazine, but. I remember, and this is like I'll never forget this. He's interviewing Rabbit for the the original book. Mm. Um, we we'd set we did a couple of we did two or three sessions, but this one session I remember in particular. Rabbit was at a party. I don't know how, it, and he goes, "Oh, meet me over there." And it's at this party, and he'd had a bunch to drink, and it was it was in this one of the old classic kind of coolie houses. It was out the back of Tweed, I think, and and he's there, and we got talking in the backyard, and he's. And he was talking about, you know, a, a lot of the, you know, uh, and of course you got to remember this. This was back when Michael was alive, mm. you know, 
So this isn't after Michael died. This is when Michael was very much alive. And and we're talking and, and mate, and then suddenly, and, in, and you know what Rabbit starts doing, mate, when he gets worked up. <laughs> like, he's got you. Like, he's, yeah. he's got me. Right, it's the front on headlock. It's around the back of the neck. Pulls you in and he's... And he's doing it like he's got me in, and he's he's in like he's literally in tears, like talking about some of these these times that they had together, and and how powerfully it affected him, and and kind of my, talked. I think it was I think we were talking about Michael, like the demise of Michael off the scene, and mm. and how it had affected Rabbit, and Rabbit had gone the other way. You know, Rabbit was shooting for the stars, and and Michael was going the other way, and and Rabbit's like he was so like he's in tears, and he's so emotional. He's he's got you in the body hug. Yeah. And then the then he's doing the, the heart punches coming in and 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 mate he's like you go wow this is like you know primal yeah. this means so much to this guy you know this this relationship and and you know and and you got that sense then there was a few pretty much all the people you spoke to they weren't quite as animated and and, and emotionally kind of invested as Rab but. Mm. But you got that sense that you know Michael meant a lot to these people, um, and yeah, that was it. We were out in the street, and, and he's hit he, like he's doing the heart punch, and he's got me in a headlock, and and I'm just going fuck. I hope my tape recorder's still working here because because I'm you're getting caught up in it at the same time. You're going well. This is like you're going fuck. Yeah. This is so heavy. It's like you know, um, but at the same time you're still switching. Going fuck. I hope my tape recorder's still going here. Cause, oh man. Because this is like just stuff from the heart. Well, the the that, best that's really hard to get. Yeah, the the my I think the highlight or one of the highlights of my entire time at Surfing World was when this mag was printed. I had to fly up the Goldie for something, and I took the one issue we had off the press. You know, I don't I don't know why we only had one, but or maybe I only grabbed one out of the box or whatever. But I got off the plane on the Goldie, and I went to D-Bar, I might have had a meeting or something, and I, I was up at D-Bar, and I was looking down on D-Bar, and I just read this story about this session that Rabbit and MP had shared out there that he had written in the story that you'll hear, and I'm driving back down the hill, and I'm just going, oh, I'd love to give this mag to Rabbit, and he's crossing the road, dude, in front of me, <laughs> and I just went cosmic fucking apricot overload, and I just pulled over, I was tooting the horn going, bugs, and he goes, Blakey, and I said, I've got an MP Mac for you, and I ran over, and I, I gave it to him, and he just held it in his hands, mate, and and you've seen the cover to this mag, like, it is yeah. the shot, like, it's MP, and this is what Bugs said to me, he's looking at it, and he goes, oh my god, that's that's Michael, that is Michael, he goes, he's exit stage left, like, it's a, it's a Hull McCoy <laughs> frame grab, I think he's running around the fucking point at Kira. And he's sort of half off the page with a full-blown fang tail, you know, like uh, just taking center stage. We'll put it on Instagram and on the socials. But it is the iconic shot. And Bugs started just bawling, like crying yeah, his right. eyes out, yeah. mate, just going like, this is this is him, mate. Like, this is who he is. Like, this is it. And we just hugged it out and we were both in tears. And it was just fucking magic. And, it, like, I was just going, man, oh, man. And you're like what you're talking about, that, like, what it – what this guy meant to him went to a place that even he couldn't actually kind of articulate or, yeah, or, yeah. or you know, put into words. Cause it was just, it was so formative and so important and, and pushed him to a level that he probably would never have reached without MP. So that was special. But um, 
On the flip side of that coin, just before I let you go and we get stuck into these stories, mate, what was your take on Rabbit reflecting, uh, sorry, on an MP reflecting on bugs? Did he give you much? Or was it just <laughs> classic, like, oh. I could say, but I won't say? Oh, it was kind of strange in a lot of ways. You'd, you'd talk to, to Michael in some points and he he almost be answering as if it was still 1975. Right, yes, yeah. And and it had kind of, he'd kind of broken free from time and and which kind you know which you don't might understand a little bit if with the the, the schizophrenia and also being removed so much um having been removed for so long from the whole scene and everything that you know he hadn't kept tabs on what everyone had done that much um and so it, it's still you know it, it was always and if you ever said anything that someone else had had actually said, and they go, who said that? You go, what were they, is that what they said? That, they said I'd given up surfing? Is that what they're saying? It's just like, it's still like, you know, you're still playing the game a little bit and um, and hadn't really, you know, removed himself from that from that moment, you know, because I, I don't think he talked a lot about it. Or, but then in, you'd also in bits of it, you know, he'd be self-aware that he was saying some of this stuff and, He'd make a joke about it, and and you couldn't kind of tell whether he was he was just stringing you on a lot of the time, um, which I know a lot of the time he was for you know for a fact because um, he he was he was still very very canny, um, hmm. um, but also like you know it's not a traditional interview where you can sit down and and just ask people about what they'd done in, at this point in time in the past, and because he'd be really elusive on stuff and. Hmm and um really hard to pin down on stuff and if you didn't want to talk about stuff you wouldn't he just wouldn't talk at all mm. and um and so you know and it, so these interviews took place over the course of a couple of years and some of them were not like would were just blank tape you know <laughs> you'd sit there and across the table and for 15 minutes and and he'd have his sunglasses on inside and and you wouldn't get a word, and and that'd be it for the day. And, and then other times you'd find you'd find ways in, and often you know talking about shaping was always a good one. He liked talking about that. Um, there's you know there's other subjects that would get him going, but it was um, but yeah, really hard to re- like it really, especially yeah for someone who'd never never done a book and this thing landed in my lap, and like it's a great untold story, but it's also you know, you know, I, I only had to my own rudimentary understanding of what schizophrenia was mm. and how to how to deal with it, and and I wasn't aware of how aware he was of his own condition, and and that and that's because that's that's another story, you know, the surf component of it's one bit, but Michael living with this thing for for all you know his whole time, and and, I, and I've got to on the spot kind of work out how to how to engage respectfully with it you know um so like a, i think like in retrospect it's in, an incredible opportunity and a learning thing but but at the time man really like <clears throat> really testing oh, to big time and to mate, work like, out. What, like is the book still in print are people able yeah, to mate, like order out. it and yeah. get like so because if you haven't read this book you have to read it it's it's like I don't know. It's gone down now as one of the all-time great surfing biographies. It's uh, it's so beautifully done. And just, you know, as a last little aside here, mate, like, 
your life changed after this book. I mean, this this really announced you as, uh, you know, you might not think so, but it definitely announced you as a writer who was ready to take on huge stories and tell these fucking fantastic tales from surf history. And you became entwined in MP's life after this. Like, uh, so many interviews. You did a second book. Um, how did you feel when news came through that he passed? Did you did you know it was sort of happening? Uh, I'm, I know you're extremely close with the family, but how did it affect you when um, when the great man passed? Oh yeah, I was really sad. Like I, like Joan called me and told me, and and obviously you know Michael's health hadn't been great and wasn't great for a long time, but but he died of a heart attack and it, it was sudden and and no one saw it coming. So yeah, and obviously that whole um, it happened during the week of Bells as well, I remember. Mm-hmm. So so we were down here at Bells and which which in a way was, you know, kind of probably put a, made a little more powerful considering his history of, of, of... Three-time winner. Yeah, three-time winner down here. So obviously, you know, for it to happen at the start, in the middle of that contest, like <clears throat> suddenly all these, you know, it felt like the ghosts of the place were was spinning around everywhere and because Tommy was here at the start mm. as well. And, um, and it was and so a, we, the, the all time final. I mean, Mick versus Kelly, the, the Kelly copter goes down. Mick just blasts that air on the shore to, to, you know, rinse him with basically three waves instead of hundred waves. And, <laughs> yeah. oh, and then the, to- oh, the tornado. And then the tornado. That's right. Yeah. That oh, was like, it was wild. Cause we, We'd come back. We went for the went up for the funeral and came back. And then the final final day, and that was the um, you know that was the Mick that famous Mick and Kelly final. And though, though of course they were the two surfers who were, were closest, closest to him. Cause, yeah, because you know Kelly was really close. Yeah, you know, he he touched base with Mick whenever he was up there, and <sighs> and and Mick obviously Mick Fanning was you know through the Kira Club connection. Um, was the, and they were the two guys in, closest to him, and then had the, the minutes applause before the final, and then just had this all-time final, and then the final finished, and and like literally kind of Mick had run the bell, and, and the crowd had walked up the hill, and this fucking storm come over the back of the <laughs> the back of the farmland of bells, and just mate, it just blew the shit out of the place. I was I was in one of those demountable mm. commentary booths with Claw. Mate, the thing was moving. It was literally walking towards the edge of the cliff. And we're watching these stands and they're moving towards the edge. And Claw's sitting there in his socks and sandals bouncing up and down. And he's going, oh, it's Michael. It's Michael. He's here. He's here. And then, and then right. it blew all the thing is they had all the past winners. All their faces were on the yep. cyclone fence on the way down. It fucking blew all of them into the ocean except for one. And you know who, who yep. that was. Yeah, you would not have believed it if you weren't there, man, because I was under the scaffold as well, uh, Ronnie and I, and when we walked up along where that walk of fame had been and it was completely blown over and and lost into the paddocks, as you say, and fucking there he is, the one face just staring at you is MP, like too cosmic, man. I mean, mean, there there was so much like... Nudge, nudge, wink, wink in that farewell, eh? Like, like even just the whole East Coast lighting up, like Kira pumping on the day that he died, like, and then the paddle outs that came, you know, just showcased how important this guy was, and then what a impact he'd had on just multiple generations, even if he had been, you know, reclusive and mysterious, and basically gone to surfing until your book came out. I think, yeah, uh, well, mate- it, it was just there was so much cheekiness in the way that it all panned out after he passed. 
Well, the thing is, mate, everyone, and I think that's a, the, the wider thing with with Michael's story, you know, is it is that <laughs> there was the reality of Michael and living that and, and what had actually happened. But then as that, as that, once he withdrew from the scene and that story got a life of its own and, like, people wanted to believe it, you know, mm. and it got a power of its own. And people wanted to believe that this that that there was some like otherworldly kind of element to him, and whereas really he was just this you know he's just this mild mannered mannered middle aged guy who lived with his mum mm. you know and and but but the mythology of it was so powerful that it kind of felt like fuck man when he died like it just manifested all this stuff it manifested the storm it manifested the swell it. It, the mythology was so powerful it could do anything, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, mate, look, uh, I won't throw you under the bus and say that you've got heaps of copies of that old issue lying around <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I know that you don't. That's They're, they're so rare. Uh, but I, I know that MP, the life of Michael Peterson, uh, is well worth getting hold of. Just uh, Google it, I suppose. And... Um, yeah, mate. Uh, I hope everyone enjoys, you know, your reflections of your time with MP in uh, this story, and also, uh, you know, Rabbit's fond uh, and not so fond memories from his time as well. Yeah, mate. Yep, yep. It's um, mate. What a what a guy. <laughs> yeah, classic Sean. On you, mate. Thanks for your time, and um, yeah, look forward to seeing you soon, brother. Cheers, Warner. Thanks, Bye, mate. Michael from Tweed. By Sean Doherty I never knew MP Never even saw him surf But in Australia That doesn't matter so much Growing up as a surfer You were infused with his talismanic legend The great MP Hushed incantations are offered To his supernatural surfing feats Stories told About the day MP rolled into town And surfed the local point break Like it's never been surfed since tall tales spun about his dark mischief. The Australian coastline positively echoes with them still today. I never knew MP, but I met Michael Peterson. And when tasked with stringing together a narrative of his life, I knew disentangling the man from his legend would be the prime directive. Well, they certainly looked nothing alike. The MP of legend was a taut and searing physical presence, built to surf an oozing style with his long hair and the ambiguous mirrored sunglasses. Summoned from his tiny bedroom by his mother, Michael Peterson sat three feet across from me at the kitchen table. At this stage, I still wasn't convinced it was even him. He tucked his considerable shirt into his considerable tracksuit pants and slicked back his thinning thatcher hair. His handshake was dead fish reluctant. Squinting as the morning light flooded the room, his dark eyes darted about. He put his sunglasses on, the same ones, sat there and said nothing. Quietly shitting myself, the silence was eventually broken by a gurgle from somewhere deep inside me. Meeting Michael Peterson in the flesh for the first time was like having the curtain drawn back on the Emerald City and seeing the omnipotent Wizard of Oz suddenly standing there in all his human frailty. Because once you strip away everything the MP legend has become, the stories, the bullshit, the cult following... Beneath it all is just a man. Someone actually had to live through all that, and being MP took a frightening toll on Michael. MP and Michael Peterson were very different entities, although, if you looked hard enough, there were faint hints of one in the other. 
MP was the stage name. Michael Peterson was the man. MP was the most incandescent and intense surfer Australia has ever produced. A guy who had surfing coursing white hot through his veins. And a guy whose aura attracted loyal disciples in every corner of the Australian coast. Michael Peterson, meanwhile, was the gentle giant who lived reclusively Sid Barrett style with his mother in a Tweedhead's council flat. A fragile schizophrenic who sat beneath a mango tree at the end of the street every morning and communed happily with the voices in his head. A guy who, if you could believe it, had years before in another life been the best surfer in the world. The first year of interviewing Michael for his book produced little. Most of my early visits were greeted by a rhetorical, not today, h before he'd retired to his bedroom. And when he acquiesced, our interview sessions would often result in farcical standoffs across the kitchen table as MP sat there in silence. He wouldn't even give me an, I could say, but I won't. It was a brutal stonewalling, but that first year proved instructive from an observational sense and in many ways taught me more about him than any story he could have told. There were clear scars from his years in institutions. He'd pace the perimeter of the small backyard, eat his meals by the clock, retreat to his room regularly, and close the door behind him. Even his contraband was kept well hidden. His modest shoebox of cash, earned by signing autographs, was kept well hidden under his bed, while a stash of mixed lollies was kept safely in the bedside chest. But the real contraband was better hidden, and it needed to be. When it comes to Mick and Tommy, Joan's two boys, she doesn't miss much. She's been one step ahead of them for 40 years with their smoking habits, defoliating crops and incinerating stashes. And in Michael's later years, she's become increasingly vigilant, worried that Michael might go back to his old ways. Well, Tom and Mick hatched a plan where Tom would leave a bag of bushweed in the stormwater drain down the road. He'd then call and give Mick the code. Looks like there's rain coming, Mick. The following morning, on his way up to the mango tree, Mick would climb down into the drain and grab the bag. After speaking to others who had lived Michael's story with him, I had trouble reconciling the fractured and flighty man who sat opposite the kitchen table from me with the guy who, in his prime, could ruthlessly dismantle anyone who stood in the way of something he craved. A wave, a girl, a winner's check. I pondered whether his 30-year battle with schizophrenia which had left him physically unrecognisable, had also extinguished the fire in his eyes. I soon smelt smoke and saw fire. I'd walked in just before lunch one day to talk Hawaii with Mick. I took my customary position at the Formica kitchen table and rolled tape. It was slow going, interrupted by a couple of unexplained but clearly procedural laps around the backyard. Joan told Michael she was driving to Burger King to fetch lunch and Mick promptly ordered a hamburger, large chips and a Coke. Joan disappeared out the front door. Michael and I were talking about the time Ben Iper punched out his fins at sunset in 1973, but it was clear he was somewhere else. His eyes were darting side to side, always a dead giveaway with Mick when there's other business afoot. The keys crunched in the ignition and Joan reversed out of the driveway. I was mid-sentence when he wordlessly got up, walked past me and out the back door. Suddenly, I was invisible. Mick peered over the back fence and watched his mum drive off down the road. He returned with purpose, straight into his bedroom. I heard the furniture being moved, and pondered what sort of contraband he had hidden from Joan in there. He emerged seconds later with a generously rolled joint, and the backyard was soon engulfed in smoke. I watched on, intrigued, as he took a small garden trowel 
and buried the roach carefully in the far corner of the flower bed. He ghosted back inside, straight past me into the bathroom. I heard the sound of teeth being brushed, deodorant being sprayed, and hands being washed. The bathroom door opened just as a car pulled into the driveway. Michael shuffled across into his chair just as the front door opened, and he took up the Ben Iper story exactly where he'd left it as Joan walked into the room. Sounds like you boys are having a great old chat, she chirped. He locked eyes with me for half a second, offering a knowing look, and chuckled under his breath. And that's when I saw him. MP. It was masterful. Slowly, as the months rolled on, I gained his trust, although I sensed my presence was being more tolerated than appreciated. But Mick soon learned I could be a handy source of news from the surfing underground, all the news from lands beyond the mango tree. He started asking the questions. Hey, Chine, who's been ripping out Kira? What do you mean Kira's not there anymore? What's Al been up to? Who won the Duke this year? After 30 years in exile from the surfing scene, MP was starting to stir again. When I asked why he'd given it all away, why he'd stopped surfing, it was MP and not Michael who replied, I haven't given it away. Who told you that? Is that what's getting around? For while Michael Peterson inhabited a new corporeal vessel, one that was unlikely to get back in the water anytime soon, the MP psyche had been preserved perfectly in amber. MP started speaking of past victories in the present tense. MP started hinting at a comeback. MP was still clearly in 1975. As months rolled on, we found Trojan horse subjects that would open doors to Michael's past. Cars were a hit. He destroyed dozens, the Mazda 121 being the pick. And you couldn't shut him up about health food. Avocado ice cream from the bamboo flute was his favourite. And his refusal to drink tap water, an early sign of his growing paranoia. And I learned not to get him started on the thruster. He saw the first thruster as the asteroid that signalled the demise of his generation, the power guys. And he'd launch venomous diatribes at the thruster that would last 20 minutes. But nothing piqued his interest like talk of shaping. He'd get out of his chair and start talking with his hands and he'd see the board in front of him as he spoke of it. He remembered certain boards in crystalline detail, exact dimensions, fin flex and foil, who glassed it. The shaping bay, along with the tube, were his sanctuaries. In there, he could fire machine gun thoughts into the object in front of him, and was able to think and craft in three dimensions, occasionally four or five. He'd sometimes shape with his aviator sunnies on to see the curves better. Most of his boards were brilliant, yet so blindingly refined that he was the only surfer on earth capable of riding them. Accordingly, some of the best insights I found into Mick came from the guys who'd shaped with him over the years. Michael could still remember shards of his past with startling clarity, but struggled to put those shards back together. He could remember what he ate for breakfast in Japan one morning in 1976. It was a fish staring back at me. No peas and no eggs. Wasn't into it but he couldn't recall exactly what he was in Japan for. Most memories had survived the ravages of his drug habits, the shock therapy, and the psych medication. Just that the filing system was a mess. Of course, I figured much of his amnesia was selective, particularly when it came to the darker chapters of his past, and I was right. Mick, have you ever been to Thailand? Nah, John, he replied, avoiding eye contact. You sure? Why would I go to Thailand? No waves there, Chon. I knew he'd been, and I knew what some of his mates had been up to over there. But Mick didn't budge, so we moved on. 
A week later, I found an old photo of him in the shaping bay wearing a T-shirt with Thailand emblazoned across it. A passport check revealed that while Michael Patrick Peterson hadn't been to Thailand, Michael Patrick Phil indeed had. Oh yeah, Bangkok, he said to me the week after when I returned. It was real fast. I saw Bangkok and knew I had to get out of there. I didn't get too involved with it. I went down south of Bangkok, but it was too heavy. You always felt like they were setting you up. You got to watch yourself. You want this? You want this? Then there's a copper sitting around the corner watching it. I went, nah, I'm going home. Too heavy. I didn't do nothing. I just bought some nice shorts, some trousers, some boots, a leather coat. I got a $100 coat there that cost 600 bucks here. It was unbelievable. For Michael's mother, Joan, the book proved cathartic. Hers was a story, incredible in its own right. And she'd spent so long guarding Michael and his past from the slings and arrows that she was pleasantly surprised that once it was all laid bare, there was an understanding and empathy for them both that had never been there in the past. She was his rock, and without her devotion, we'd have undoubtedly been mourning her firstborn son 30 years earlier. As for Michael, I don't know what he thought of the book. He never read it. But at least it proved a catalyst of sorts for him to make some tentative steps beyond the mango tree. When he got back to the surfing tribe after 30 years, he found that far from being forgotten, he was warmly embraced. He saw a lot of old faces, shook a lot of hands, and traded a few stories from a previous century. He'd watched the contest at Snapper, watched the guys surfing deep behind the rock. The ones who really had it wide were taken off on the deepest section, a kamikaze rock outcrop behind Snapper that's been christened MP Reef. Really? Questions Michael? That's what they call it, huh? MP, the surfing legend, died long ago. He walked out of the surf somewhere down the coast near Marimbula one day in 1983, donned his aviator sunglasses, threw his board in the car, and drove north in a bottle green 66 Falcon to a date with destiny on Brisbane Story Bridge. He'd never set foot in the water again. The tempest that had been brewing inside him for years was about to break. The voices were getting louder, and the pressure of being MP was closing in. Michael Peterson can remember the day MP died, August 10, 1983. The previous night, he'd famously been arrested after a car chase that ended on the Story Bridge in Brisbane. The cops got him, but by then he'd outrun the Martians he claimed were chasing him. The police tore the car apart looking for drugs, but there were none. It was Michael's disease that had finally caught up with him, and he was dragged off to Boggo Road Jail, a diagnosis and a treatment still six months away. They closed the road off and it stopped right there, recalled Michael of that night. Straight off to Boggo Road. I didn't know what I was doing. I did know what I was doing. I don't know. It was weird that night on the road. There was no one on the road. That's what was weird. I thought it was a setup to get me. They gave it to me at the cop shop. Really gave it to me. I kept me cool and they put me in the cell overnight. The next morning, they took me to Boggo Road. I locked it in Boggo Road. Away from the drugs, away from the women, away from the sex, away from the surfing. It was good. It was what I needed. Away from the pressure, it was another world in jail. I wasn't MP anymore. That's what I wanted. It ended all that high pressure. I needed a break from it all. I liked it because you got three meals a day and coffee, good coffee. They knew me as Michael, but they didn't know me as MP. And I played along with that. Pressure's what you got to beat. Jail never worried me. If you think like that, it doesn't worry you. But that was the end of my surfing career right there. 
That was the end of MP. Michael Peterson, the man, meanwhile, lived on, succumbing peacefully just two weeks ago in the arms of his loving mother, Joan, a few feet away from the kitchen table where we'd sat and talked for two years. The ocean paid homage to a favourite son, to Joan's beautiful boy. On the day of Michael's funeral, 2,000 miles of coastline between Noosa and Bells was firing. It was six foot and behind the rocket snapper, and even big groin Kira was having flashbacks. Down at Bells, where Michael won three times, they devoted the entire event to his memory. An hour after the final, a storm front rolled in across the adjacent farmland and ripped the contest site apart. The road into Bells had been lined with cyclone fencing, adorned with the images of every past Bells winner, and they were strewn like a deck of cards. Young, Richards, Curran, Ocalupo and Slater were all scattered to the wind and lay face down in the scrub. There was only one image left standing. For MP believers who have spent the past 30 years searching for things of such portent, it was a sign all right. And when Michael passed, this time around it would be the man whose life would be celebrated, not just his legend. For 30 years, the MP legend has been romanticised, stylized, and embellished to the point where it has taken on its own life. MP will be perpetuated in a cacophony of extraordinary tales, stories of prodigious feats in the water and dark adventures on land. Some of them bullshit, and some of them impossibly true. Michael's family and close friends, meanwhile, will remember Michael Peterson, the man who lived through it all. A shy and misunderstood man, who in the right company was warm, engaging, funny. They'll speak of a haunted genius who spent 40 years running from the fame his surfing generated. They'll speak of a fish out of water. They'll speak of Michael from Tweed. Not. MP. Just surf, Chine. Rabbit Bartholomew remembers his hero, rival, and friend, Michael Peterson. Growing up in Coolangatta in the mid to late 60s was pretty amazing. All roads eventually led to the surf, but there are a stretch of pool parlours, pinball joints, slot car tracks, and trampoline havens that was like Las Vegas for 11-year-olds. It was at one of these establishments, Gill's Cafe, that I met the Petersons. Mum, Joan, ran the joint. She was quite a commanding presence behind the counter, and the kids were never far away. I met Michael through Tommy, who was my age. Michael was a few years older and was cadet champion at Greenmount Surf Lifesaving Club and quite a good soccer player. I used to see him play, and we were all coached by Jack Woodward at Goodwin Park. My first real encounter was pretty gnarly. Tom and I did not own surfboards, and Michael had the best board in town. It was phase one of the shortboard revolution. MP's surfboard was just under eight foot, and I fantasised about riding it. One day Tom said that Michael had given us the green light to take it for a spin, so we headed down to Rainbow Bay. The surf was fun. We took turns for hours. It was the surf of a lifetime. As luck would have it, Tom was in possession of the board when Mick turned up. The intensity in his face... The glare, the tapping foot, the inner fury. It was intimidating. Obviously, Tom did not have permission. He copped it, and I was hanging by a thread after that escapade, but it was still special. MP had a fierce rivalry with Peter Townend, but because I never competed against Michael until I was 18 and he was 20, I was welcomed into the inner circle. This was a privileged position because it meant hanging out at the Peterson house, Bellbird Flats in Cooley 
one hill over from the town ends. This is where it all happened. The shortboard revolution went down under the house at Bellbird. Longboards were dragged in, stripped down and reworked. MP was honing his shaping and designing skills and Tommy was glassing. Just picture mum, Joan, sitting upstairs sipping tea in her dressing gown while Tommy was experimenting with hot coats. Tins of smoking fumes from not-quite-right mixes going off in a corner right next to a drum of resin. I'll return to Bellbird, but first there was the next chapter, Joe Larkin's factory. You see, those original cutdowns were just short, rotten boards with the same hideous bottom curves and rails that turned upwards. But at Larkin's, at the turn of the decade, there was serious magic happening. Some kind of gravitational pull had brought together shapers Brian Austin, Gordon Merchant, Terry Fitzgerald and Peter Glasson, as well as master glasses Graham Black and Victor Preston. MP and PT were the apprentice shaper designers and the original Cooley kids were the test pilots. The real magic occurred when Gordon Merchant introduced the tucked under rail. This allowed for serious tube riding and MP began getting 20 foot back at Kira and making it. Of all the design breakthroughs, this innovation was a game changer and places like Kira and Burley could now be surfed to their potential. Michael had idolised Nat Young, but following the 1970 World Contest at Joanna, Wayne Lynch became a major influence, particularly with plane shapes and fin design. Throughout 7071, this all percolated through MP's extremely sharp mind, and he began shaping these amazing high-performance boards that, under the maestro's feet, revolutionised high-performance shortboard surfing. The living room at Bellbird Flats was a shrine to the gods. Every inch of wall was covered with phenomenal surf shots. 80% Nat, 20% Wayne, and a couple of classic Ted Spencer picks. Michael would sit there and sigh. There was no conversation, but it was riveting just to feel the presence of that energy. He would carefully prepare muesli, covered with chopped banana and sprinkled with lycaton. Soy milk was added, and he would chew it methodically, all while listening to Deep Purple in Rock. Next would come a bowl of chopped, dried apricots with a handful of almonds and cashews, all washed down with a smoothie made from organic fruit and yogurt. At the conclusion of Smoke on the Water, we would pile in the falcon and head for Snapper. Wow, what a session. MP didn't just rule behind the rock, he owned it. If one were to aspire to take off behind the rock at Snapper, Sooner or later, it would mean tangling with MP at his most ferocious. He didn't much care for anybody else surfing behind there, unless you were in the car. Then he tolerated you being there. But between the steep takeoff, the backwash, the rocks, and a high-octane MP, a lot of good surfers left Snapper licking their wounds, having been faded, hurled, held down, humiliated, and finally humbled by this irrepressible force of nature. There was not a word spoken but the unique whistle that MP had developed was very intimidating. Once the whistle came echoing from behind the foam ball, everyone stopped in their tracks, more so to ogle at the genius than anything else. But sometimes it was the deer in the headlights scenario, knowing he was deep and you were on the track and the whistle was coming for you. 
During the week, the points were way uncrowded. I recall many Arvos after school where me and Dave McDonald would be looking for mates to surf with at Kira. So many times we'd look out at insane Kira and wonder where everyone was and then walk to the end of the point and all would be revealed. Back in the day, Greenmount followed the natural contour of the point. It was hollow but so rippable. You'd look up there any Arvo and see the unmistakable white mop and pink shooter of PT flowing stylishly down the point. Really good surfing. On the next wave, every time, you could not quite see the surfer, but every five seconds an eight-foot rooster tail would form a perfect arc of water. It was MP. Kira was going off, but MP was at Greeny because that's where PT was surfing. In 1971, we all went on a classic road trip, our first pilgrimage to Bells. Joe Larkin packed the van, and together with MP, PT, Terry Baker and myself, we drove out of Cooley to the sounds of the Beatles, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Santana, Cream, Dylan, Donovan and the Stones. Joe camped in the van and the four of us slept in a tent. With me, separating MP and PT, with Weenie Baker sleeping sideways at the foot of the tent. After a few raunchy Joe stories, we would retire for the night. PT would be at great pains to outline to me what the route was to getting a sponsor and becoming a pro surfer. I always looked up to PT. He had his act together. And each night would tell me to collect clippings and start a scrapbook and present myself professionally. There was this unmistakable presence on the other side of me. Someone who I admired as a bit of a superhero. And he would try and break up my conversations with PT with a very low but audible, Psst, don't listen to that wanker. Come this way. I'll show you how to be the best you can be without all the bullshit. Just surf, Chine. That was his nickname for me. Chine. As in, China Plate. This went on every night, just before we'd doze off. And most times, it happened concurrently. The consummate professional in my left ear, the newly crowned animal in my right. One morning, as we prepared for empty perfection at Maruya Breakwater, PT was meticulously working on his wax job when MP came from around the back of the van and splattered melted butter all over PT's wax. They began duking it out. Weenie tried to separate them. Joe sat in the front seat of the van and lit up a rolly, and I paddled out into perfect lefts. Every day was like an adventure. And boy, did MP love Santana. Michael was pretty much the only teenager in Coolangatta who didn't drink. He was really pure, a super health freak. He would lecture me on stuff like not to boil the jug using hot water out of the tap because it would put iron in your bloodstream. So I never did. Still don't. The only time he was ever allegedly drunk was a weekend away at Evans Head with the Kira Surfriders Club. The older guys had introduced some of us to a radical but cheap drink called Brandy Vino. And we all got mightily pissed on the Saturday night. I went to get in my sleeping bag only to discover that someone had vomited in it. Tommy claimed it was MP. I never actually saw MP drinking that night. I just had to take Tommy's word for it. There was one occasion I competed against Michael before I turned 18 and hit the open men's division. It was the 1971 Kira Pro-Am, held at Off the Wall D-Bar. The McCoy boys from North Narrabeen, as well as a young MR and the top wind and sea guys from Surfers Paradise, in particular Paul and Rick Nielsen, were all entered. And MP and I just tag-teamed on home turf, all without a spoken word of course. I ended up sliding into second place behind MP, and Michael won a stereo system. To celebrate, he invited me back to his pad at Rainbow Bay, and along with his girlfriend, Paddy Conlon, 
We sat there all afternoon and listened to Cat Stevens' Tea for the Tiller Men. Over and over. Pretty much everyone else in town was at the Cabbage Patch getting on the piss. But as Sunday Arvo turned to night, where did the children play went around and around that turnstile. At the precise moment, without a single word spoken, MP scratched his chin and shook his head. It was time for me to go home, and after a fond adieu to Paddy, I went silently into the night. Well, I think it's fine Building jumbo planes Or taking a ride On a cosmic train Switch on summer From a slot machine Just get what you want to if you want Is you can get anything I know we've come a long way We're changing day to day But tell me, where do the children play? I cannot honestly call myself a close mate of MP. In the back of our minds, we both knew there would one day be a war. It would be a defining part of both our lives, and it kept true mateship at bay. By 1974, Sean, MR and I had made a big ascension in Hawaii, and that didn't go down real well with MP. There was an event called the Lightning Bolt Pro, and I got third in it, and I got a bit of publicity at home. When I got home, a friend came up to me and said, Mate, you should check out the MP factory. I asked why, and he said, There's photos of you up all over the wall. I went, Cool, that's great. He went, Nah, it's not. On one of them, he's got bullshit written all over it in big red writing. And he's using another one as a dartboard. But on the other side of it all, we were friends again. I also believe that only a couple of human beings could call themselves his china plate. One was Peter Tracker, who ran with Michael in the early 70s. Then there was Graham Wood, an incredibly talented goofy footer from the Central Coast. And then possibly only Chris and Paulie from the South Coast. He and his brother Tommy had a rad relationship. They fought like animals. I remember Mick paddling Tom's board out and dropping it on the other side of the shark nets after one too many drop-ins. And I saw Tom chasing MP with a fence paling around Greenmount Point. This was no ordinary sibling rivalry. I do recall that MP had a great relationship with Vanya, who was quite possibly the most notorious prankster Queensland has ever produced. The one true defining memory, though, is of MP in the ocean. He was such a freak arms down to his ankles, a pigeon chest that he would rise up on when in manic paddling mode, an uncanny instinct for the deepest of barrels, an insatiable thirst for waves, and the need to destroy every wave he rode. His best was not captured on film. I do remember the Arvo that Albie Fowlson came through town and shot the sequence for Morning in the Earth. I got off the school bus, and it was just an ordinary February Arvo. Three to four foot Kira, and the Arvo Sow-Easter on it. I remember another Arvo when the school bus came up to Kira and Michael was tearing up a wave the likes of which I had never seen or thought possible. It was low tide and he was only riding the top 12 inches of the wave. He did about eight of those morning the earth cutbacks in one 10 second burst. It was so imaginative. At low tide, you cannot leave the bottom of the wave, but MP found a way to tear the bag out of the top of the wave and connect all the sections. Another time I went to Kira. It was only two to three, but there was a strong south swell and a southwest wind on it. So I raced to the top of D-Bar and saw one lone surfer out there. MP was on a red railed board, slightly longer than usual, as he was preparing for Hawaii. It was six foot and ridiculously perfect. 
MP took the third wave of set, backdoored this thick clunk of a section, which then looped into private bank and walled off endlessly. The wave spat out Michael just before Lovers Rock. I've seen a lot come and go around here, but that was the best tube ride I have ever witnessed at D-Bar. I raced down there and joined him in the lineup. I was absolutely frothing about that barrel, but one look at MP and I could tell he wasn't that stoked to see me. And so it was on. Just an amazing session with not a single witness. At MP's wake, Guy Ormerod reminded me of something that he witnessed at Burley. Back in the day, the heats were back to back, no pauses, with one hooter finishing a heat and starting the next. In a memorable Queensland title at Perfect Burley, MP was in the first semi and I was in the second. As the seconds counted down, a double up barrel approached. We both took off on the hooter in different heats. I was behind MP. He went for the fade, but I anticipated and got up inside his turning circle. The wave threw out and raced off and we both pulled in, me sitting just behind and above his wake. I could see a slight gap and knew for sure he would backdoor the next section, so I straightened out and broke through the curtain to exit the doggy door. After the wave exploded, I looked along and MP came flying out the end. We shook fists at each other, both won our semis and prepared for our own version of the rumble in the jungle in the final. We had some great trips together, our most memorable being our first trips to Hawaii together. That alone could be a movie. It was that outrageous and a paragraph in this tribute couldn't do it justice. I haven't even touched on his competitive career. Again, it's a story all on its own. When Michael passed, I was taken on one last journey back to 1971 when he was the king of Kira, soon to be the king of Australian surfing. I didn't want to go anywhere else. They were such rich memories of growing up with MP, Tommy, PT, Macca. How the coolie hierarchy went was that Michael would hand his boards down to me and I would hand my boards down to Macca. That's probably why there are no originals. They were surfed to dust. One vivid memory did strike me hard. The great Brazilian Formula One driver, Ayrton Senna, had a vicious rivalry with French driver Alain Prost, himself a world champion. They exchanged harsh words, they taunted each other, trash-talked each other, and definitely tried to destroy the other guy at 300 miles per hour. Senna was considered the most naturally talented to ever grace an F1 car. I was in Brazil when Senna was killed in May 1994. There was great sadness. At the funeral, it struck me to see that Alain Prost was taking it the hardest. He was at the head of the pallbearers, and his grief was there for all the world to see. On the day Michael died, I finally learned what that lesson meant. They needed each other. They were a part of each other. Without the other, it just wasn't the same. I know it had been 30 years for MP and PT and me, but that lesson came home to roost on March 29, 2012 the day Michael left us.
Greatest Stories Never Told is brought to you by our good pals at Cooper's Board Store, Australia's largest in-stock board store. Located in Coffs Harbour, or you can shop online, Coops is shipping surfboards Australia-wide every day. 50-plus years, locally owned since 1969. There's boards for all levels and over a 1,000 sleds in stock. Yeah, Coffs might have the big banana. Yeah, Rusty Crow might live up the road. But if you're going to go to Coffs... Go to Cooper's. And if you can't call in, get your stick sent to your front door at coopersboardstore.com.au. Oh, man.